So welcome to our summer series. Um, we are going to spend the entire summer um, looking at the life and actions of Jesus and how he turned uh, the world and the way people view the world completely upside down. Um, and it seems like it's an appropriate time to start our summer series because it seems like it stayed cool longer this year. And then all of a sudden when the heat hit, it hit with a vengeance. Um, and so it's a, it feels like we're in a summer. I was a little worried that we were starting it. It didn't feel like it, but it feels like it now. Um, last week we kicked off the series looking at the arrival of Jesus um, and his basically his coming on the scene publicly as he began, was going to begin his ministries. And we looked at John the Baptist announcing Jesus to the people and when he, when he did so, he didn't look at everybody and say, hey, I want you to believe in this guy, or hey, I want you to believe that, or hey, I want you to check your minds at the door because everything we're getting ready to say and do is really unbelievable, and if you think about it too long, it'll fall apart. He didn't do that. He, he looked at Jesus, he, he pointed to Jesus, and he told the crowd and his followers, he said, look, I'm not going to say anything else. Look for yourself. There he is. And he made this amazing statement, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And with that announcement, he began, even before Jesus started to do anything to flip people's ideas of how things operated and the way things were going to operate further, before they flipped them upside down, they, John, with his announcement, did it. Because in his taking away the sins of the world, it changed the way that the Jewish people viewed the world. Because at that time, nations were against each other. Nations didn't like each other. Nations conquered each other. And the name of the game was whose God is the strongest because every nation had its God. And when one nation would conquer another, then their God was the God. And, and so to the Jewish people for all of their history, God was for them. It was not for other people. And so for John to say, here's the Lamb of God, not just for your sins, but for the sins of the world. I mean, that led to immediate a lot of questions because the people had to wonder, wait, wait, wait. We thought when other people, when the world, we spent all our time avoiding them, staying away from them. When they're in our land, we feel like God is against us. And so if God is now for all of them, does that mean God is still for us or not? What, what's going on? And so even the very announcement of Jesus began to mess with the way that people viewed the world. Well, today we're going to talk about temptation because as soon as Jesus was announced, he disappeared right? He was gone. He didn't say, all right, John, thank you for that great announcement. Thank you for the introduction. You look like a wonderful crowd this morning. Give yourselves a hand. We're going to get this all rolling. Like he immediately disappeared. And so we're going to talk a little bit about temptation. The one thing I've noticed about temptation is that temptation is always, always, always an invitation to embrace self-interest, right? Like when I'm tempted or you're tempted, it's always going to be something that's beneficial to me that's gonna help me or gratify me in some way, or at least I think it will, and you think it will when you're tempted to do things. But it's certainly, temptation certainly when we're facing it is all about me. And when you face it, it's about you. I mean, because really, if you think about it, I, I'm never tempted to be selfless. 
or overgenerous to others, right? That's not really a temptation. In fact, when those moments hit and I feel that way, that, man, I'm going to be selfless. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be generous here. This is what I'm going to do. I, I don't think of it as being tempted. I think of that as, um, well, am I a good person or what? Right? <laughs> Can I, right, right? You'd like, you're like, ah, yeah, I'm doing it right. Yes, I hope, I'm, I hope everybody's looking. But if, if you do consider, if you do consider maybe being selfless a temptation, it's weird how good we are at overcoming that temptation, but not all the ones that deal with ourself, right? And I've learned over time that it, the pursuit of our self-interest, we end up hurting ourselves, right? In the pursuit of our self-interest, we, we end up hurting those around us and other people, and Jesus comes along and he, he tells us, he says, look, if you make your life all about yourself, not only do you hurt yourself, not only do you hurt others, but if you make your life all about yourself, you end up losing your life. So Jesus disappears by himself into the wilderness after his big introduction by John that got everybody asking a lot of questions. And here's what the text says about that in Matthew chapter four. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that, that Greek word devil there is uh, diabolos, where we get our English word diabolical. It seems to fit, but, but it, it literally means the slander, the, the accuser or in our English Bibles, they've interpreted it the devil. Now, this is really an interesting piece of narrative because if you look at just that line, all of a sudden, for many of you, there's a piece of your theology and your, the way that you look at God that you're going to have to turn upside down. Because in this sentence, when you look at it, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit, part of the, part of, part of, um, the Trinity, by God, into the wilderness for a specific purpose, to be tempted. To which for a lot of you, are like, well, no, 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 God's supposed to keep me from things. He's supposed to protect me from things. And he's supposed to point me in the right direction. No, no, no. God wouldn't lead me into a situation where I'm going to have to face temptation, would he? And it's not just this. You, you look later on when Jesus gives his model of his prayer. And he asks God, what does he say? Lead me not into temptation. Implication being God will lead you into situations where you are tempted. For some of you, mind blown. You're not even going to be able to pay attention to the rest of the things I say today. You're going to be like, wait, what? God leads me into temptation? Mm-hmm, sometimes. But there's probably two groups of people. There's at least two groups of people here this morning. One is those of you who grew up in church, and you know this passage that we're getting ready to talk about. And you're like, yeah, 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 I know where this is going. I, I, I know how the whole thing goes. And then maybe there's another group of you that, that maybe you didn't grow up in church, and you're like, oh, oh, okay, so I'm supposed to, you want me to believe that there's a devil now? Is that what's going on? The answer is no, but for both groups, I want you to hit pause for just a minute and allow me to unfold something for you because this is more than anything, I want you to understand why this passage is included in the scriptures, right? Because anytime you read ancient literature and especially the Bible, well, really the Bible, because you probably don't read any other ancient literature. 
And most of us don't even read the Bible anyway, let's be honest about it. But when you do, you need to really ask a question. That question is, why did the author include this in the writing? Well, why, why, is it, why is it in there? And the reason you need to ask this is because in ancient literature, there's not very much ancient literature. The volume is pretty low. And anything that was written down and recorded took on an extra um, amount or an extra level of authority. And that even really holds true to some extent today in our culture. If you're having a conversation and you're maybe debating a topic or talking about something with somebody, and you throw in the phrase, I read an article that says, immediately whatever follows has a little bit more gravity to it than just your own opinions that you were spewing just a minute before that. And then maybe if you find out who wrote it, and it's a person who you can depend on, and you know they're writing, that, that adds even more authority to it. And so when in ancient literature, anything written down had an extra level of authority and, and it was really expensive to write things down back then, to have the materials, to be able to find someone who knew how to write things down. That was a big deal. And so you didn't waste space and you didn't waste resources, and you didn't waste time. You put in the things that were important. And so you have to ask, when you're looking at these passages, of all of the things that they experienced with Jesus, why did multiple gospel writers find this passage, this idea, this event, why did they think they needed to include this passage? Because I'll admit, it's a little bit of an odd passage. And it raises questions. So why include it? And the answer isn't because, well, this passage tells us exactly everything that we need to do to overcome temptation. I mean, there are some takeaways from it, but the answer is because this passage, this story is central and key and something that Jesus is gonna deal with throughout his entire ministry on earth. And throughout his entire life, he was tempted he was tempted to go for the old ways as opposed to the new ways, the ways that he had come to introduce himself as he came to be a bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. And the old way, the way that people looked at things was the me way, the how can I benefit way, how can I leverage it to my advantage way, or we'll call it the kingdom of this world way. So here, here's, here's how it went down. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted. Then after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> to which I'm like, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. As if we wouldn't think he was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. But the reason that he writes in such an obvious thing is because the story that they're getting ready to tell, the gospel writers, the story that they're getting ready to tell is really amazing. And they needed to take every opportunity that they could to remind the readers Jesus was human. Jesus experienced this the way you experience this. And he was weak and he was vulnerable in this moment. Come on. Some of you know how you get after you miss one lunch, right? Yeah, imagine 40 lunches in a row and the dinners and breakfasts that surround them, right? You're not gonna be your best. 
You're not, you're, it would probably be a good thing you would be in the wilderness because nobody would want to be around you, right? And so it was as if Jesus was setting himself up, putting himself in the most vulnerable state that he could possibly be in to make it as difficult as possible to show I am serious about what I'm getting ready to do. So the tempter came to him. And now the tempter, that's a new Greek word in there. It's not the same word as to be tempted by the devil. This is parazdo, which means the inquisitor, the tester, the questioner, the prodder, the one who's gonna try and draw out of Jesus what no one else could get out of him. And he came and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, just speak, just speak. If you are the son of God, as you say, It'll be done. I mean, I, I read the first part of your book. It's got some pretty good stories. And listen, if God, your dad, if God can speak the universe into existence, surely you can handle some bread. Besides, Jesus, you're entitled. You're entitled. You know who you are. You, you know you're Jesus. You're you. Listen, Jesus, mortal kings, if they had this power, would exercise it regularly. They would do, it would be a show of who they were, a show of what they could do. They would use it. And Jesus responds to this first temptation by leaning into that old covenant between God and between Israel. Because even though he came to introduce a new covenant, he was the bridge. And when he started, he was still operating under the old covenant still functioning over the, under the old laws and rules. And so he quotes from the Old Testament. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight. He takes us back to when Israel was getting ready to enter the promised land and Moses gathers them together and he's giving them a speech kind of recounting, this is how we got here. This is the things that went on. This is what you can expect and so, and so he quotes this, this Old Testament. He says, he says, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. And this was the part where Moses was reminding the Israelites, hey, remember when we had to depend on God? When the only way we would eat was with God provided for us and day after day after day, we would get up and our only hope was God? that we depended on him, daily dependence, daily dependence, daily dependence. And he's bringing them back. It's not about the food. It's not about all this stuff. This is all about depending on God. And he finishes out the statement. Does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, in other words, even though I'm the son of God, I am not going to act on my own. And not only that, I am not going to act independently of my heavenly father. I only do what he tells me to do. And if he doesn't tell me to do anything, I operate under the law because that's what I'm here to do. But to do so, to act independently of God, to try and impose on God, that would be the kingdom of the world. I'm not into that. So the devil takes him to the holy city 
When I read this as a kid, I always pictured some kind of Star Trek beam me over kind of situation. But I really don't think that's what it was. I think these two spent time together. I think they walked. I think they were well acquainted with each other. So the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Which again, as a kid, when I read that line, I, I, when I'm a kid and I'm thinking, what's the highest point of the church? The highest point was the steeple, right? You drive around a whole lot of churches around town and the highest point is still the steeple. So whenever I heard, okay, so he, they went to the highest point of the temple. I pictured them up there doing some kind of balancing act. Just like, okay. And there's, it's a small point up there. So I don't know if the tempter was on his back and he was just, you know, I don't know how it worked, but that's, I had some kind of acrobatic thing in mind. But that's not what this was. That's not it at all. The highest point of the temple would more be like this building. They said the highest point of the YMCA. That would be the roof above the gym above us. That's the highest point. No balancing act required. You can just be up there. And for the temple, it was the southeast corner. Because if you stood on the southeast corner, you could look down over the Kidron Valley and it was hundreds and hundreds of feet down to the bottom of that valley from the top of the temple. In fact, Josephus, a first century uh, historian, said that if people stood on the southeast corner and looked down in the valley, they could not stand there very long because they would become dizzy from the steep drop and how far that it went. And people would have to be pulled back from the edge to keep from falling over. So this is where the tempter takes him. And he says, he says, let's try this. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down. I mean, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus. You had that introduction at the Jordan River. That kind of confused some people, kind of made them think some things, and then you just disappear after that. So Jesus, you want to get people's attention? Jump. Come on. If you jump and you go tumbling down there and you're not hurt and you get up and you dust yourself off and you just walk as if nothing happened, Jesus, you're going to be in business. People are going to take note. They're going to want to find out what's up with you. They're going to want to be on your side. So Jesus, why don't you just uh, make an impression? For it's written, the tempter says. And Jesus quoted scripture. And so being familiar with scripture, he quotes back. He's like, I, 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 can, I can do that too. So he quotes back Psalms 91. He says, it's written. He, speaking of God, will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. In other words, he's taunting Jesus. And if you look at what he did, he, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't God say, Jesus, didn't God say he would take care of you? Didn't he say he would keep you from getting hurt? And, and Jesus, 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 didn't you just tell me you live by the words that come out of the mouth of God? Well, here are his words. Are you going to do it? Are you going to live by those words? Surely you trust that God will take care of you if you cast yourself down. And here's what he was tempting Jesus to do. 
He was tempting Jesus to do what so many of us are tempted to do so often. And that's to presume on God. That is to say, okay, I've got this idea, God, and I'm going to do it, God, and you're going to catch me and make it work. Okay, I'm going to run off and I'm going to do this plan. And we don't consult God when it comes to our plans, but we run off and do our plan. Then we're in there in the middle of doing it. And we're like, okay, let's say a prayer. God, bless my plan. Make my plan work. God, be glorified through my plan. To which God's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Where was the prayer when you were making the plan? Why didn't you consult me then? presume on God and use God. That's what so many of us do. And unfortunately, this has become the modern version of faith within American Christianity. A version of faith that perhaps some of you were brought up with. Perhaps a version that some of you have left. Perhaps a version that some of you need to leave. Perhaps it's the reason that some of you even have trouble coming to church at all. It's that version of faith that is if, if you believe, you'll receive. If you quote the promise, you'll receive. If you quote a scripture, you'll receive. If you do, do, do in this certain order, you will force God's hand to do for you. If you just believe enough and quote enough scripture and pray hard enough, then it will happen the way you want it to happen. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus quotes Moses as he's addressing the nation of Israel on the way into the promised land, where Moses says, listen, God has, he doesn't have to do this for us. The people were saying God has to. Moses was saying, no, 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 God doesn't have to. God doesn't owe us. Because the people were like, no, no, we're God's chosen people. He has to come through. He has to do this in this certain way. And Moses says, no, he doesn't have to do anything. And yes, that you're God's chosen people for a purpose, but that doesn't mean you get to manipulate God, nor can you manipulate God. You can't back him into a corner. You can't twist his words to use against him to get things to be the way that you want them to be. In fact, the point is for us, for me and for you, that the moment you begin to try to manipulate God and you begin to look for a magic formula that if you do one, two, and three, then God's gonna do this every single time and you just gotta find the right combination to get him to do what you want. As soon as you do that, you're no longer practicing Christianity. That's not what you're doing anymore. Your religion has become superstition. And your religion has become that of the pagans that Jesus came into this world to replace. And your religion has become so very kingdoms of this world as you try to use God, your heavenly father, creator of the universe, as you try to leverage him for your own means and your own grace. Because God is not a king in heaven waiting for you to bring enough good words or enough good gifts or enough sacrifices or to do everything in just the right way for you to get his, for you to get his attention so that he will then act on your behalf. 
In fact, the opposite, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not to think of him in that manner. He's inviting you to call him heavenly father who knows what you need, but he cannot be talked into or bribed into doing something for you. But you're to come as children who simply ask. So Jesus gets through the first two temptations. And then he gets to the the third one. And, And I think the third one is the main event. I mean, the first two were important, but But I think they were just primers to get to the third one. And the reason that that I think the third one is so important is because this is the one that Jesus would come back to again and again and again and have to face and get over throughout his ministry. But before we get to the third one, I've got a question. Here's the question. Why are powerful people so inclined to go off the rails? I mean, it's a, it's a tale as old as time. Why are powerful people so inclined to go off the rails morally, ethically, financially? I mean, you would look at them and you would think, wow, the more powerful they are, the better of a person they can be, right? They have less pressures financially. They have nobody telling them what to do. They have more freedom, more autonomy. They can move about and do the things that they wish to do. Why don't they become better people? Why does it seem they seem to go off the rails? Why is it that the inclination is that when people have wealth and a lot of money, why is it that when they have influence and they have power, why are people more likely to leverage that for their own interests? Where does that come from? Why isn't it the opposite? I mean, and along the same lines, where does bullying come from? That idea of I'm bigger than you, I'm more powerful than you, I'm gonna make sure that you know it. Where does that sense of entitlement come from? When it comes to things like sexual harassment, where does that come from? That because I have the power, because I'm stronger, because I have the influence, because I have say over what your future opportunities are or are not. I'm gonna be able to do this to you. Where does that come from? Where do we get that? Where does the arrogance and the elitism and the extravagant consumerism and the greed, where does all that come from when people have wealth and influence and power? Because you think like I think, wow, if I had all of that, I'd be a better person, right? Come on. How many of you have thought just at least one time, if I had what they had, just think of the good I would do. Anybody? Right? Yeah. But why is it the power corrupts? What is that? And here's here's the great thing. And this is why I think you should follow Jesus. It's because he taught and he modeled. And this idea isn't brand new to us because we've heard this because Jesus introduced it. But to the people who were around him at the time, this idea, this thing that he taught and modeled, it flipped their world upside down. He taught us that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. That that's not how the world works. 
And people pushed back and they were like, no, Jesus, Jesus, no, 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 no. Okay, if you're who we think you are, we're looking for somebody powerful, all right? And we're, we, we wanna leverage that for us because we need somebody to get Rome out of here and we need somebody to restore us to the great nation that we once were. And so Jesus, this idea of the power, not being for power, oh, Jesus, I don't know about that. And Jesus taught that wealth is not primarily to benefit the wealthy. That wealth is for others. And wealth is a test to see if you can be trusted. And what lies in your heart. And if he will be able to give you more. And most people failed the test. And I know what some of you are thinking. Where do I sign up for this test? <laughs> right? Can I go online? Is there a form? Can I sign up for the wealth test? I'll take it. I know, I know I can do better than all the rich people that I see. But the truth is, if you're listening to my voice, you are taking the wealth test. 90% of the world would consider you wealthy. And Jesus would say, look at what's in your hand. Who do you think that is for? What do you think you're to be doing with that? Throughout his ministry, Jesus would be tempted to leverage his power and his influence for himself. And that's why I think this third temptation is the main event. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Of course, that's impossible, right? I mean, we got Google Earth now. We can see <laughs> we can see any part of the world that we want. But then you, can't, you cannot go to a spot on the planet <laughs> and see all of the kingdoms of the world. It just can't be done. So here's what I think the writer was getting at. I think the writer was getting at, he was showing what was the epicenter of the Jewish world. I think that the tempter probably took him to a mountain north of Jerusalem. I think they probably went up there at night. I would guess it would be night because then they would be able to look out and see the city of Jerusalem all lit up at night in its splendor. The epicenter of Jewish culture where they believe God dwelled amongst them. And from that vantage point, you'd be able to look off in the distance. About 18 miles away would be Jericho, all lit up. You could see other cities off in the distance. And so, yeah, not every kingdom of the world, but the Jewish kingdom. And you would look at it. And he says to him, he says, all this I will give you, he said. I mean, after all, isn't this what you came for? Isn't this what you came for? These are the people you want, right? This is what you're doing, right? I will give all this to you. And you got to remember that for this to be a legit temptation, the tempter had to have the authority to give it to him. Which means at that juncture, it had been handed over to him. So he says, you're here to get it back, aren't you? Listen, Jesus, you know everything you're getting ready to go through. You know the pain and the torment that lies in front of you. Here's an opportunity 
to shortcut it. This is what you came for. You can have it. If you will bow down and worship me. All you have to do, Jesus, is acknowledge that it's mine to give. That's it. I want you to leverage your worship for your sake. Because after all, Jesus, this is what you're entitled to. This is why you came. I mean, who refuses what they're entitled to? Who refuses what they think they're gonna end up with anyway? Who refuses what's theirs? What's coming to them? And the answer to that question is, people you admire are the people who refuse what they're entitled to. Because here's the point. G Jesus had not come to barter for a physical kingdom. That's where, that's where the tempter had missed the point. He had come to establish a kingdom. And not a worldly kingdom, but a kingdom in the hearts of men and women. A kingdom of conscience. A kingdom that says wealth is not for the wealthy. Power is not for the powerful. Influence is not for those who wield it. He came to establish a kingdom that was completely upside down from the existing worldly kingdoms, one in which a king would lay down his life for his people. Not the other way around. Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him. And Luke, when he's writing his version of the story, he adds on, the, adds on to the end, the devil left him for an opportune time. Meaning, this isn't the end. This isn't over. I'll be back. You're gonna face this again and again and again. Then after this in Luke, we find Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And then, just for fun, perhaps Jesus decided he wanted to taunt the devil Instead of turning a stone into bread, as soon as Jesus gets back from this interaction, he goes to a wedding. He's like, oh, I'll turn something into something. I'm gonna turn water into wine. Not for my benefit, for the benefit of the host, for the honor of the host, for the benefit of the guests, not, not for myself. Jesus was offered what we all want but he refused it. Jesus had come not to take over, but he had come to forgive the sins of the world. He had not come to lord over mankind and bring a new set of rules, but to lift the burden that we all carry. In fact, by the end of his ministry, his followers still didn't get it. We're going to look at something in a few weeks and we're going to look at a lecture that he basically gives them but they had heard all of his teachings and they'd seen everything he'd done, but they just couldn't get their mind to flip. And they were still clinging on to the old way of thinking. So he sits down there and he gives them the, the lecture and he says this, he says, not even the son of man, which is how he would refer to himself. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve others, to give his life. Guys, you don't get it. None of this is about leveraging for yourself. And I know this is turning your thinking upside down, but guys, this is the direction we're heading. And this is what I need you to grasp hold of because you are going to take this idea and move it on once I'm gone.
Now, here's why this is important for you. Because do you know what Jesus valued more than the kingdoms of this world? You. He valued you. He came to ransom his life for you. Regardless of how much power you have, you don't have the power to overcome the consequence of sin in your life. And he came to be a ransom for you because no matter how much money you have, it won't heal a broken relationship or get you forgiveness. No matter what amount of influence you have, it cannot free you from the shackles that you put yourself in. Living for yourself. So he came for you. And do you know what hung in the balance of Jesus, what hung in the balance when Jesus was facing these temptations? The temptations to embrace the way of the world and the way things had always worked? It was you. You hung in the balance because you are who he was here for. And you know who hangs in the balance when you face these temptations? It's still you. It's still you because you know that when you live your life for you, you become smaller. When you live for you, you don't become bigger. Your influence doesn't spread. And Jesus came and said, I came that you might have life. And a life about you is not much of a life. In fact, a life about you ends up with you losing your life. See, the reason people all over the world are gathered this morning talking about this person, Jesus, is because he chose to turn everything upside down and not live for the kingdoms of the world. And it made him the single biggest, the single biggest feat figure in all of history. But he did not leverage the power and influence for himself. All of us are given a measure of power and wealth and influence. So the question is, how are you going to use it? If you're a follower of Jesus in his upside down kingdom, your wealth will be leveraged for those in need. Your power will be leveraged for the powerless. Your influence will be leveraged for those without a voice. None of this sat well with the wealthy and the powerful, as you can imagine. And here's why. And this is where some of you may be sitting this morning. We naturally resist what we cannot control, and what we do not understand. And so the temple and the empire would come together and would crush Jesus, or so they thought. But in the end, they would be outmaneuvered. Because what they had done to him took care of the old way of thinking. It would have fixed the problem in the old worldly kingdom. But that's not the kingdom that Jesus was here to establish. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, 
I thank you for the example that, that was your son. Lord, I thank you for what we can learn through this passage and through this story. Lord, I pray that there may be some of us in this room today, Father, that <laughs> even though it's not a new idea that Jesus introduced it 2,000 years ago, we still operate in the mindset of the kingdom of the world. And we leverage our wealth and our power and our influence for our gain. Lord, I pray this week that you begin to convict us, that you begin to open our eyes, that you begin to allow us to see the way that you have turned things upside down. And that even though it doesn't make sense all the time from a worldly point of view, that God, we're operating in a different kingdom. And so, Father, I pray this week that you intentionally bring situations across our path that cause us to realize this is one of those moments. Perhaps I've got to turn my thinking upside down. Your Heavenly Father, I thank you for all that you've done for us, your mercy and your grace. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for being here. Hopefully we get to see you tonight at five o'clock. Um, if not, we will see you next week as we continue looking at ways that Jesus turned the world upside down.